As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Andrew Sheets is chief Cross-set strategist at Morgan Stanley, he has to synthesize together, piece together all of what Morgan Stanley is doing. Andrew, I'm going to suggest in August your head is spinning. We've got to get from August to September. What are we going to look like in September? Well, thanks, Tom. So, so look, I, I do think markets are in this interesting pause, this interesting quiet before a lot of incredibly important events that are all arriving in September, October, right? We have uh, an important Fed meeting in September where we think the Fed's going to hike another 50 basis points. We have inflation that's going to be coming down, but we think it's going to be coming down slower than probably the Fed would like. And then you also have a very important earnings season where we think the numbers are going to get reduced further into third quarter earnings. So, I think at the moment, you know, the market has been getting some relief from the fact that inflation has been a little bit better. Sentiment was was very bearish. You've had some better than expected economic data. But I don't think these issues have been resolved. And we still think that the Fed has more to go and then also will ease policy less next year as they want to stay serious about inflation. Andrew, at times, and I'll say this for you, I think you and the team have unfairly been characterized, described as perma bears. You weren't in 2020, in spring 2020. In fact, you were out front saying, let's buy this market. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Can you tell me the difference between now and then? Because for a lot of people, they're conditioned by that experience, Andrew. They just remember people telling them, don't buy this, don't buy this. And then we got 40% down the road off the lows and they realized they'd missed the rally. Andrew, what's the difference between now and then? What are the signals that were triggered then that you said buy that aren't being triggered now? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. So I, I think there are, are a number of really big differences. I think in early 2020, after after that market decline, you had a lot of very early cycle signals. You had very depressed economic data, very depressed sentiment, importantly, very easy monetary policy with very low inflation. Remember, we had that kind of infamous <clears throat> negative number uh, for, traded for a barrel of oil. And, and you had very low valuations or much, much lower valuations, all those things coming together, a lot of things that you usually get kind of around a, around a recession. Now, I, I think as we kind of fast forward to today, I mean, valuations aren't necessarily expensive on, on all asset classes, but they're, they're nowhere near as cheap as they were in early 2020. But I think more importantly, the, the monetary policy backdrop is, is night and day. It's, it's gone from kind of whatever it takes response to an unprecedented pandemic 
to you know one of the fastest paces of, of rate hikes that we've seen in the last 30 years in attempting to get in front of some of the highest rates of inflation we've seen in the last 40 years. So I think it's that that resolve from central banks, especially the Fed that we think continues, that's one of the big differences. So, Andrew, all of that makes logical sense. And yet we've seen the return of the meme stocks in recent weeks, speculative behavior that we all thought was going to be long gone in an era in which central banks are tightening policy. What kind of signal does that send to you? And how hard do you think the Federal Reserve is going to have to push back against that kind of behavior? Yeah, thanks, Kaylee. So this is a great question. I mean, anytime you're on the more cautious end of the spectrum and you're incorrect about that, I think as, as we've been over the last couple of weeks, you, you do need to think hard about that thesis and, and if you're missing something. And I, I think if it was a rally that was being you know, led by, by new leadership, cyclical leadership, a sign that you know, we've had the worst of the slowdown behind us and things are going to reaccelerate, I think, I think that would actually be a very encouraging sign. I mean, I think that would be the sign that this really is a mid-cycle slowdown or, or we've already had the sell-off off of recession. But I, I think the, the re-emergence of some of the biggest beneficiaries of, of low rates, zero rates, uh, quantitative easing, in, in 2020, 2021, that, that doesn't feel like uh, kind of a new cycle starting. That feels a little bit more like shorts being squeezed, uh, investors being fearful of missing out, uh, sentiment maybe not being as depressed as, as we otherwise might like to think. So, I, you know, I also think from a Fed perspective, the Fed has to think about financial conditions and its goal is to tighten financial conditions. And so, again, you know, as we've seen stocks bounce back and as we've seen some of the most speculative areas of the market bounce back, that's that's going against one of the things the Fed is trying to accomplish. So, Andrew, when do we get the wake up call? What's the wake up call look like? What are you anticipating? Is it one speech from Chairman Powell next week in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Is it the data? What is it? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a number of things I think we need to look out for. And again, I, I do think this upcoming window for markets is, is pretty important. I think if, you know, if, if worse things are going to happen or if trouble is going to emerge, it's, it's going to happen in the next, the next two months or it's not going to happen. So I think that trouble would come from inflation not coming down as fast as expected. So the upcoming CPI, especially core CPI, core PCE, not declining um, uh, as much as the Fed would like, I think that would push the Fed uh, and push the market to, to remove their rate cut expectations from next year. And, and we like pushing against uh, those rate cut expectations next year. We also like being long the dollar for those reasons. And then it's the earnings data. I mean, this has been something that my colleague Mike Wilson in the US or my colleague Graham Secker in Europe have been very focused on is, is a view that the earnings expectations they think are, are too high. Now, the third quarter is often a relatively weak quarter seasonally for earnings. That's often when companies come out and, and take guidance down. We'll see if that happens again. But our expectation or our concern is that the, the risk of that is is still elevated and we'd like to get through that third quarter earnings season first. Well, you owned the front half of this year, that's for sure. The second yep. half is up for grabs. Andrew Sheets of Morgan Stanley. Andrew, awesome as always. What's important is to watch flows. And when it's August and it's slow, Flows really matter. Uh, uh, Emily Grafeo over at our asset uh, division reporting today on a massive switch in flows that we've seen in the equity income. And this is all wrapped around quality. The search for quality is seen in flows. Kelsey Barrow on the bond side, fixed income portfolio manager, JP Morgan Asset Management. Emily Grafeo was looking at the equity market. What do you see in flows and bonds? When you and Bob Michael look at the screen, what do flows look like? 
Yeah, so we've seen some pretty large moves within the fixed income market over the last few months. So if you think about what the market was pricing in terms of recession probabilities implied within triple B spreads mm -hmm. or the equity market, it was as high as around 80% in mid-June. Now that's down to about 40%. So we've seen a very large retracement in, in high yield spreads down to uh, the, the mid to low 400s. And what we feel in terms of that movement is we understand why there's been a repricing. There is an increased probability of a soft landing. But at this point, this level of spread is really no longer protecting you from the still material risk of hard landing um, if inflation remains stickier, which is our base case. Okay, Kelsey. So where does that leave the Treasury market and how that's priced right now? Are you more comfortable with that? Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo wrote this in the last 24 hours, that April's five basis point inversion seemed to have got more attention than the almost 50 basis point inversion we had last week. Why do you think that is? Well, we've been positioned for curve flatteners. Uh, I know I was last here on July 6th. We were calling for higher front end yields on a flatter curve. The twos tens curve is now 30 basis points flatter. Um, and we think that that makes sense. The Fed has done two supersized rate hikes. Now what we're looking at, so the market is pricing in uh, the Fed funds rate getting to uh, around three and a half percent by the end of the year. That's basically in line with the Fed. The real divergence comes in 2023, where the market is pricing rate cuts and the Fed is expecting to continue to hike. And I think the minutes gave us some insight into that. I noticed one of the things that um, that stood out to me was the fact that there are a number of people on the committee that expect that once they get the policy rate to restrictive, they're actually going to need to keep it there for a period of time. And, and we are on, lean on that side, expecting that the Fed is going to need to keep policy rates higher because although we got one decent inflation report, we're still seeing a lot of wage pressure. And one of the data points that that we thought really was under underappreciated last week was unit labor costs, productivity adjusted wages, <clears throat> which is also uh, still very strong. Relative to previous cycles then, Kelsey, previous hiking cycles, how much longer do you think they're going to keep it at that terminal rate, that peak rate of the Fed in this hiking cycle relative to cycles gone by? Yeah, so we looked back at the last four, five, six hiking cycles, all kind of the modern hiking cycles that you'd think of, and a couple things stood out to us. One, the Fed never stops hiking rates when the real Fed funds rate is still negative. So just to put it out there, the real Fed funds rate is still uh, minus 6% if you deflate it by headline CPI. So they still have a lot more to go. But in terms of how long they're going to keep policy and restrictive, on average, we see that uh, the Fed keeps rates uh, uh, at that terminal rate uh, for about uh, seven to 12 months, so about a year. Uh, and we think given the magnitude of the inflation problem, given the fact that the unemployment rate actually continues to tick down, despite, you know, we'll watch initial claims or, uh, later this morning. Uh, and so we expect them to, to be more in line with the historical average of the last four tightening cycles. Well, while we're looking back at history, let's talk about the 70s as well, because I noticed some research out of Barclays on credit earlier this week, essentially saying when you look at this inflation and growth environment, it's most akin to 1973 to 1975, 1978 to 1980, both periods which were not good for credit. And they say this time isn't going to be different. Will it? We are a little bit more cautious on specifically high yield, given the retracement we've seen. There, there are probably some things that are, are going to uh, 
you know, put some resistance uh, below 400 on high yield spreads. Uh, one, we do expect that issuance is going to start picking up. Also, if you, you know, break it down between the categories uh, within the high yield, uh, one of the areas where you're going to really need to see a lot of retracement to get spreads materially tighter would be triple C's. And these lower quality companies are starting to feel the pinch of higher prices, higher interest rates. Um, and so, you know, where we're more focused is in short dated investment grade credits or so higher quality, as well as short dated securitized credit. These have better break evens. They have better all in yields. Um, we can feel more comfortable uh, with the credit quality. And if you look at how they have performed in this rally, they've, they've kind of lagged relative uh, to the U.S. high yield market. Where would high yield spreads need? to get to in order for it to look attractive? Well, back in June, uh, we got around 600. And at that point, we thought that we were at least starting to price in uh, and get compensated for those risks of a harder landing uh, for an increase in defaults. Now, I, I don't want to ignore the fact that on a high level, credit fundamentals are still extremely strong. Uh, we're starting from a very good point for both uh, investment grade and high yield companies, high cash balances. They've termed out their debt. Their leverage is, is on track and, and looks good. Um, relative to pre-COVID. But we do have to realize that where we are in the cycle, uh, things are going to deteriorate from here. Margins seem to hold up actually better in this last uh, earnings report, but we do see that, that that's not something that's going to be sustainable as inflation pressures remain. Cassie, just awesome, as always, and wonderful to catch up again here in New York. Cassie Barrow there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. My recollection, John, is Francisco Blanche has led the charge on over $100 a barrel on Brent. When he said it, it was a shock. He's head of global commodities and derivatives research at Bank of America and joins us today. Francisco, I want to touch on one paragraph in your new report, which was shocking. And I know Kaylee wants to pick up on the news of the day. You tore about, tore apart 
Arkey distillate, which is a 47,000 gallons on a Boeing 777 that all of us need, that we all take for granted when we fly around domestically and internationally. You say watch jet fuel. Why? Well, uh, look, Tom, I mean, I think we have, uh, we still have China in lockdown. We have large parts of Asia also uh, in partial lockdown uh, when it comes to international travel. And, um, and I think that's going to open up in the next six, 12 months. Uh, we are uh, down 25% uh, on jet fuel demand globally from pre-COVID levels. Um, we could see a pickup of, of uh, half a million barrels a day, maybe more, just on that front alone. And, and again, this has been the, um, the leading fuel in the last 12 months. I expect it to be the leading fuel in the next 12 months. It's, How will it's that come over fuel. to Brent crude's price? Can you extrapolate over from the new Pacific Rim demand over to over $100 a barrel, Brent? I, I, I'm definitely constructive on Brent right here. We've we've pulled back uh, after the, the seasonal driving peak in America. Uh, but I think uh, coming, coming into the winter, mm-hmm. you're going to have jet fuel demand. You're going to have demand from Europe because of the record high natural gas right. prices you have there. Um, and, and also remember, um, we still have a very tight global refining system for, for a variety of reasons. So all of that, I think, is going to drag us back all higher. Right. I've got 14 themes. I have to go to the social reality that Europe faces. This is not about math. It's not about spreads, crack spreads, and the rest of it. It's about multiple, multiple standard deviation moves that become social policy. Tell us how your world can help Europe in this crushing social policy of where prices are electricity in France is an example. Well, uh, Europe faces an obviously a very complicated situation. If you look at European natural gas, um, right, I mean, 40% comes from Russia or used to come from Russia. And you've lost uh, right around, um, you've lost right around 10% of the entire mm-hmm. energy supply of Europe with Russia curtailing that gas. Um, other things been equal. That would that would mean a ten percent GDP contraction. Mm-hmm. And what's happening right now essentially is Europe is is trying to price itself back into the global economy, so to speak, by attracting liquid gas from Japan, from China, bringing it to the European continent. But also importantly, we're seeing the shutdown of zinc smelters, aluminum smelters, right. um, steel plants, and and fertilizer uh, capacity. So that that's all imported again. So essentially. All European energy prices are rising above global prices, but importantly, a lot of the domestic uh, produced uh, energy-intensive commodities like steel and what have you are also being displaced out. Um, And and that's the way Europe is going to avoid uh, a very, very steep recession Mm -hmm. and probably end up with just a mild one. Interesting. That's that's essentially the approach we're going through. Kaylee? Well, Francisco, what I find so ironic about France is nuclear was supposed to help them out, and yet because of the climate issues and the river temperatures, it also is inhibiting their ability to use that power, which brings me to clean energy. There is now moves in the U.S. after the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act in that effort. There's also metrics within that, like a methane tax, for example, for U.S. producers. How is that ultimately going to affect supply of fossil fuels? Well, um, one of the hardest parts, right, uh, that we often forget is that the, the, the 2020 uh, COVID collapse in demand also brought about a collapse in, in investment. Um, so 2020 was not just a demand shock, it was also a supply shock. We had negative oil prices. We had, um, we had natural gas in Europe, uh, TTF, uh, at $1 per MBTU, which is the same gas that's trading at 80 bucks an MBTU, right? 
uh, almost like a, like a cryptocurrency, if you like, and not, and not precisely Bitcoin, mm. like one of the more extreme ones. Um, <laughs> and this is a real commodity that actually people use every day. So, um, so I think I think fossil fuels have a, have a tough future ahead of them uh, because uh, nobody wants to sign long term coal leases, right? Um, and 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 no financial institution uh, or no major financial institution wants to be financing uh, thermal coal either. Uh, it, it's hard to get uh, financing for conventional oil and gas. Uh, or, or or just shale gas. So I think I think the issue is is going to be in in the medium term. Uh, we are trying to move very fast into into a greener economy because we have these pressures coming from climate, and we've seen them. Right, part of the problem mm -hmm. uh, you talked about French nukes. Part of the issue in the French with the French nukes is that we don't have enough water on European rivers, which is a function of glaciers uh, melting fast. Right, so. We're starting to get all the compounded effects of climate change across the energy supply system, um, and 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 I think um, I think it's obviously very important to move quick to green fuels. But at the same time, we have this gap, and and unfortunately, remember prices are just the balancing item uh, for supply and demand in commodity markets, and and we continue to expect very high volatility. Um, continued inflation and, of course, a lot of basis risks um, in terms of differentials, time spreads, and cross commodities across the complex. So I, I, I just don't think I think commodity markets are going to give us a solution, but it's all going to be extreme pricing for a while, and, and we remain constructive on the complex. Francesco, I've got 30 seconds left. Can you tell me what you think Europe looks like this winter? Are we going to do a four-day work week? What's going to happen with the effort to curb consumption? Um, well, uh, Europe is going is going to have to curb consumption by by definition. It's as I mentioned at the very beginning, it's happening uh, already um, with uh, with curtailments uh, to to uh, of energy supply to industry, but also curtailments of, of uh, um, uh, temperatures at home during the summer and and during the winter uh, as well. Right. So we're going to see um, uh, force reductions potentially potentially rolling brownouts in in some parts of Europe. Right. I mean, this is what what uh, what it looks like. And, and it's almost, uh, you know, it's almost like like the developed markets are becoming emerging markets and, and, yeah. and in, in, a, in, a, in a weird kind of way. So Francisco Blanche there of Bank of America Global Research. Francisco, awesome, as always. I'm going to go right to it. You know what I care about, Dan Ives, which is the chips that are in all these miracle toys we use. The, app, the new Apple phone in September will have the A16 chip, which is 5 nanometer technology, blah, blah, blah. Is that enough to get Kaylee Lines to buy a new phone? I think it's Kaylee and about 40 to 50 million others because I think what you're really going to see here, this is a catalyst that speaks to the pent-up demand that we see across the install base. 240 million of a billion iPhones worldwide have not upgraded in three and a half years, and I think this is still significantly underestimated by the street. Dan, I take huge issue, as I know you do, with the way the media tosses out, OMG, why would anybody buy a $900 toy? What percentage of us are buying this on a monthly plan and has that worked out for Apple and, frankly, for the cell phone providers? Well, it has. That's about 40% from, from a monthly perspective. And you, you put that together, it, it, it's ultimately, especially with what we believe is going to be a $100 increase on the iPhone Pro, Pro Max, it's become more digestible. And remember, you haven't had a, a price increase in, call it, four or five years. And I think you're starting to see consumers now more and more look at a $1,000 iPhone as really paying the price of what they expect to be when it comes to Apple. 
What about in China? I understand that the U.S. consumer is in a pretty healthy position, but we've actually seen Apple doing discounting in China on higher-end models. That's a pretty important market for them. What is your read on how that's going? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in China, we estimate about 30% of the Chinese consumers in terms of iPhone are in a window of an upgrade opportunity. And actually, more and more, pushing toward the higher ASP Pro Pro Max, that's very important as this all plays out because that's the hearts and lungs of the Apple bull story. And I can tell you this week, our checks in Asia are basically showing firm demand in terms of coming out of the gates for iPhone 14, which looks like the launch date, you know, called first week after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, September 7th is coming up quick, Dan. Of course, for me, I have a ton of Apple products. It's more about the ecosystem because my phone connects to my watch. I get iMessages on my Mac laptop. I have the AirPods that hook up seamlessly to my phone. I mean, it's the whole thing. When people upgrade an iPhone, what about the rest of it? Well, services, that's really been the key to the valuation re-rating that we've seen. I mean, that's going to be $90 billion of annual revenue going into next year. And, it, and, and that's why they have a golden right. install base that's unmatched. Dan, I want to get through this quickly just because of time. The 1% tax on share buybacks, is that going to ruin your world, the Dan Ives world? I view it as noise. It's not going to change okay. big tech buybacks. Okay, I want you to frame for all the gloomsters out there in Apple now, your buy on Apple. Three years out, where is this $170 stock? Look, haters will continue to hate an Apple. I view this as it exceeds $3 trillion mark cap. 220 is our base case. 240s are our bull case, and this just continues to be what I view in the middle inning of just an unprecedented upgrade cycle despite the dark storm clouds. Dan Ives, thank you so much. Thank you for your work at Wedbush. You must have been extraordinary on this hugely popular part of the market. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.